Galatians 6, verses 11 to 18. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. This is God's word. My name is Phil. I'm associate minister here. It's great to have you with us this evening. We're finishing Galatians tonight, so do keep your Bibles open. We're going to work our way through this last passage, and let's ask for God's help as always as we do it. Our Father God, we pray that your spirit would breathe life into us through these words. We pray that you would uh, show us our sin, our foolishness. But more than that, you would also show us our saviour. We pray that we would leave here with a deeper trust in him, with a greater sense of the freedom that we've been hearing about in Galatians, a greater joy and a greater confidence as we face life. Amen. Whose approval do you live for? I mean, whose blessing or commendation would you have to receive for you to feel like your life is worth living? You know, when you close your eyes and you imagine that moment of life-defining success, who is it that you most want to be watching? Whose commendation matters to you? changes, doesn't it? When you're, when you're a little kid, anything good you do, you want mummy to see, and that matters more than anything. Mummy and daddy, that's what matters. When you're a teenager, working out whether your clothes look all right, your mum's opinion doesn't matter quite so much anymore. In fact, it's probably going to send you straight up to your bedroom to change. You say, oh, I love what you're wearing. That's, that's just death. Uh, you see, it, it's interesting, at the Oscars, uh, this, uh, did you notice the size of the envelopes and the print this year? I mean, you could read them from the other side of the Atlantic. You know, this is the best picture Oscar in here. This. You know, no mistakes, please, this year. But for, for the actors there and the directors and the producers, almost all of them are already famous. Almost all of them are already adored by millions of people. They've all got scores of stalkers. You know, they, they've got the approval and commendation and love of more people than they know what to do with. But to be honest, they don't really care. What matters to them, what makes their life worth living, is the Oscar that says their peers, the producers, the directors, the academy, thinks that they are the best of the best. See, some voices matter more than other voices. And for all of us, it will be different. The Bible tells us that you and I were made ultimately at our deepest level 
to need God's approval. His is the voice. His is the smile that your soul was designed to need, to crave, to live for. We all seek approval, but in the foolishness of our sin and our confusion, we don't look vertically to God. We, we look horizontally to the academy, whatever that is for you. And we allow the God of other people's approval to have a huge amount of sway in our lives. Whose approval do you live for? Of course, that leads to another question, which is not only whose approval do you live for, but what makes you think that you'll receive that approval? What makes you think that the person who matters to you more than anything will affirm your life is worthwhile, will give you the time of day, will commend you? What are you relying on to achieve that approval? What gives you confidence that it will come? These are the issues, really, of Galatians. And at the end of Galatians, we've seen that for all the many ideologies and worldviews and philosophies that there are out there, Paul boils it all down to two options, really, for us. One, you can seek the approval of God or of people. And two, you can trust yourself and your achievements and your abilities to, to, to earn that approval Or you can trust what Jesus has done to give it to you as a gift. You can seek the approval of people or of God. And you can achieve it for yourself or you can receive it as a gift. That's what life boils down to. And the message of Galatians is the richest, the best, the happiest, the most fulfilling way to live that there is is to seek the approval of God, to live your life before the audience of one. And to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to give you that status. Okay, if you're joining us tonight, uh, this is the last in a long series. We've worked uh, right the way through the six chapters of Galatians. And it might feel like walking into the cinema as the end credits begin to roll. But, but these verses are actually very important. And you can tell that from what Paul writes in verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Now, it seems when you read through the New Testament that Paul signed off his letters himself, but he dictated them to a scribe, all of his letters. But this time, he grabs the pen himself, and rather than just signing it, he writes an entire section to us. And this whole thing about uh, the large letters, people have got confused about it, but basically, they had no bold capital highlight underline back then. So the only way you could make clear that something was really important was just write big letters, and that's what he does. So what does this postscript say that is so very, very important? Well, if you've been here for the last few weeks, it's actually nothing new. It's a reminder of what he's been saying for the past six chapters. But he has one last opportunity to drive it home. Verses 12 to 13. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Circumcision is the small cut that is a big deal for one reason. It is not that Paul is an anti-Semite. He doesn't have anything about against Jewish people. He's a Jew himself. He is circumcised. His issue is different. His issue is, how is it 
that you can be confident that God will accept you, approve you, commend you. See, in the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign of entry into God's people. It was the sign of being accepted by God. And it was the sign that you were coming to live under God's law. Now, the young Christians at the church in Galatia, they're a bunch of pagans who'd heard the message of Jesus Christ a couple of years before and become Christians. Uh, But a group from Jerusalem who are Jewish Christians have come to them and said, oh, look, trusting in Jesus is a really good way to start. But if you want to be really spiritual, if you actually want to be on the inside, fully approved by God, then you've got to get circumcised and live under the Old Testament law. So Paul's point is, circumcision is neither here nor there. It really doesn't matter. The problem is that as a ritual, circumcision says, I now want to live by the law and I want to earn God's approval every day through my good life. That's the problem. What does that mean and why is it a problem? Well, the truth is that after a few months in Galatians, half of you could probably stand up here and explain it. I hope, anyway. Um, (laughs) But the same message is repeated again and again in the New Testament. It comes up in almost every New Testament letter. And so it does seem that it is something we do need to hear about again and again and again. So let's look at it. In the Old Testament, God's people, they related to God through the law. So uh, the law that's um, given to Moses, the Ten Commandments, it was broken down into about 613 laws, if you like. And if they obeyed the law, they enjoyed God's blessing. If they disobeyed the law, they suffered God's just punishment. But all that changed when Jesus came. So in the Old Testament, you've got the law and God here. So the people relate to God through the law. The law determines whether God's going to approve of them or judge them. But in the New Testament, Jesus comes and stands between us and the law. He keeps the law perfectly. And as he dies on the cross, he suffered the curse, the punishment, the justice that we deserve for all our failure to keep God's law. And so now we just need to trust in Jesus who has done everything for us. If you like, it's the difference between the royal enclosure at Ascot and adoption, obviously. Uh, So living by the law is like going to the royal enclosure at Ascot. Uh, I was once invited to the royal enclosure at Ascot, so I know something about this. Uh, It's not quite as exclusive as it sounds. There are thousands of people there and there are no royals. At least I didn't recognize them if they were there, which is a bit awkward. Um, But, you know, they must have been quite minor for me not to recognize them. Anyway, it is still quite a thing uh, to get invited into the royal enclosure. It's quite fun going somewhere where most people are not allowed. There is something rather nice about that, let's be honest. Um, I mean, I I had no right to be there. I barely know one end of a horse from another. But a friend um, who's a a horse owner gave me uh, an invitation. I didn't earn it. I couldn't have got in. And I needed him to graciously give me the entry. But once in, the rules were incredibly strict about everything. How loudly you could speak, where you could eat and drink, how you dressed. It was a stiflingly hot day and you had to keep your top hat on. Mine was too small, borrowed, and I thought I was going to pass out. But it was, you know, either be carried out or uh, be thrown out. So you, you had to keep it on. You know? And it was like that in the Old Testament. The Israelites are graciously invited in to be God's people. This enormous privilege. But to remain inside, they had to obey. 
graciously invited in through no right of their own, but to remain inside, to remain approved of by God, commended by God, they had to obey. They had to obey the law. Adoption is very, very different from that. A child is graciously chosen by parents to join their family. The child doesn't earn or deserve that. But once in, the child is in that family forever. There's no performance monitoring with adoption. There are no behavioral targets and annual reviews in an adoption. The child is in the family forever, no matter how they behave. And that's what salvation through Jesus Christ is like. You and I do not deserve to be saved. It's not something that we can earn. But once we put our our trust in Jesus, that place in God's approval, in God's family, is secure forever. Because Jesus has done everything. On the positive side, he lived a perfect life. And then by faith, we get to share in the commendation that life deserved. And negatively, he suffered on the cross for all the things that we have done. So he paid for our failures and he gives us his success. And all of that is given as a gift so that our place in God's family is secure forever and ever and ever. And that's what makes adoption actually such an amazingly Christian thing to do. It pictures what God has done for you and me if we trust in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, you have been chosen by the king of the universe. You have been loved by the creator of mankind. You have been forgiven by the judge of all the earth. And you've had your eternity secured by his life, death and resurrection. He has done everything in the death and resurrection of Jesus to secure for you forgiveness and eternal life. Everything. So the question comes, why on earth would anybody turn away from that? I mean, if it's that good, why would you turn away from it? What possible motivation would anybody have for for switching from adoption to the royal enclosure? Why would you go from one to the other? Two things emerge in verses 12 to 13. The people who are teaching the Galatians they must get circumcised, they want to avoid persecution, firstly, and secondly, they want to look good in the eyes of others. Those who want to impress people... Uh, Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. They want to live by the Old Testament law so they won't get persecuted. Now that sounds odd to us because we think persecution, kind of persecution of early Christians, this is lions in the Colosseum, uh, kind of Roman Empire stuff. Why would the Roman Empire care if you're circumcised or not? But early on, actually most of the persecution at this stage is happening uh, from the Jews because most of the, the Christians have come out of Judaism and so their own people are the main persecutors at this point. Paul himself, he's a Jew and he's attacked, stoned almost to death and viciously beaten by his own people. And so these pseudo-Christians hope that if, if Christians get circumcised, it means, well, you know, there won't, be, there won't be persecution. And, and their own Jews will, will not persecute the Jewish Christians if they can say, look, uh, yes, we trust in this Jesus, but we're getting pagans to come and get circumcised and join Judaism. They think it'll make their life easier. Two things never change. The cross always brings persecution, and we are always, always, always tempted to compromise on God's truth. 
to avoid hardship. The cross always brings persecution because the cross is equal opportunities offensive to all. Atheists hate the cross because it proclaims there is a God and he has right over your life and he has to judge whether you are living well or not. That is not a popular message if you're an atheist and deny that God exists. Devout people from all religions hate the cross because it proclaims none of us can solve the problem of our sin. We can't do it. We're not good enough. We can't earn it. We can't achieve it. Whatever religious devotions and rituals we go through, they're not enough. The only way we can be saved is for God to graciously come down and die for us. The cross is always offensive. George Bernard Shaw famously stormed out of a meeting when the cross was explained, shouting, I will pay my own debts. And that's what we want to do. We don't want to be told, you can't do it yourself. You're too bad. The gap is too great. And because the cross is unpopular and offensive, we're always tempted to compromise, to water down the message. And so there will always be Christians who will say, the cross uh, isn't really God punishing sin. It's, it's God siding with us and sharing in the suffering of the world. Or, or God's not, uh, these things aren't really sin. God doesn't punish sin. The, the, the church is confused. Actually, um, God approves of the way we live. The cross has nothing to do with punishment. Because it's less offensive. But the truth is that the cross is offensive because the cross proclaims we're not good and we need saving. Well, the second thing driving these false teachers is they want to look good in the eyes of others. Verse 12, they want to impress people. And then verse 13, not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. It's interesting to note, it says they don't keep the law themselves. In other words, this isn't about a misplaced devotion to God. They're not confused about how to worship God. What they care about is looking good in the eyes of others. They want to be able to report, look, we have, we've got another 317 Christians to join Judaism and get circumcised. They couldn't care less how devoted those people are. They just want to be able to report the number and look good. Now, Christians are not immune to this. Uh, churches do it boasting about the numbers attending, the number of members, the number of people who've been baptized. But more importantly, I guess for us, we do it personally as well. We're more bothered about being able to say we've been through the ritual of baptism or confirmation than whether we're actually trusting Jesus day by day. More concerned about what people here think of us on a Sunday than whether we're actually obeying God Monday to Saturday. We get really angry and offended if, if, if people think we might have done something we haven't done. It's awful if people think I'm worse than I really am. But, you know, we're quite happy if people think I've done stuff that I haven't really done, good things that I haven't really done, given money I haven't really given, behaved in a way which actually it wasn't me. We're very happy for people to make wrong assumptions about us when it makes us look good but devastated when they make wrong assumptions about us that make us look bad. Because too often you and I fall into this same trap of what matters to us most is not the reality of who we are before God, but the reputation that we have with others. Ultimately, the circumcision party, these guys, they lived for this world. They wanted to fit in 
and be liked and approved of and enjoy comfort now so they would do anything to avoid persecution. They'll change God's truth if it'll make their life easier. And they wanted to hear other people say good, wonderful things about them. And deep down, they desperately, desperately want to be able to say, I have achieved, I have earned. My place in heaven is my doing. But when you do that, you forfeit the approval of the true God. And you trade the eternal words of approval spoken by God, which will last forever and determine your, your eternal destiny. And you trade it for words spoken by foolish, sinful humans that will fade away after a few years. By contrast, what we should do is boast in the cross, verses 14 to 18. Boast in the cross. Verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, uh, the word boast is not a great word, is it? It's a very hard word to translate here because for us, boast is basically a negative term. Boast is me, 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 and aren't I wonderful and let me tell you more about me. That's what boasting is. It's a more neutral term in the Greek. It can be that, but it can also just be uh, to glory in something, to delight in it, to express confidence in something. When someone tells you about an amazing gig they went to, they're boasting in the band. When a manufacturer has created a, um, a new medication, a new drug that heals multiple sclerosis or something awful like that, they boast about it on the, in the advert to tell you how good this thing is so people will take it. That's good boasting, declaring the benefits of something. And so what Paul is saying when he uh, talks about boasting in verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What he is saying there is the thing I'm most excited about, the thing on which I place my eternal confidence, it's the cross, the cross of Jesus Now, there is only one cross, the death of Jesus outside Jerusalem in around AD 33. But there are three crucifixions in verse 14. One cross, three crucifixions. Firstly, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The punishment for sin is death. The reward for sinfully refusing to love God and treat him as God and to love others and serve them as I should is to be eternally cut off from God and all his light and life and love. And that's a fate so awful, the Bible calls it hell. And at the cross, we see God's ultimate verdict on all human religions and thinking, including the religion of secular humanism. You see, the cross declares you and I are not good enough the way we are. And when you think about it, God is right. We can build a rocket to put a man on the moon. But the main way we use rockets is to blow people to pieces. We've built a worldwide web of information that means in the palm of your hand, you can have access to every byte of data, pretty much, that exists in the world. And the main use and the main profit stream in the internet is pornography built on the abuse of women and children. God is right not to approve of humanity. And God's solution to human sin is the cross. And it is no accident that the cross is so horrific, so bloody, so awful. 
Because the, the horror of the cross highlights the seriousness of the problem. When the solution is that, well, the problem must be absolutely horrific. If it took the death of my creator God in human flesh to deal with my sins, they must be far, far more serious than I like to think. So that's the first crucifixion, is the the Son of God, Jesus Christ, taking the punishment we deserve for our sin and suffering it in full, verse 14. Secondly, we're told, the world has been crucified to me. What's that all about? What it means here is that at the cross, the world loses its power over me. My life stops revolving around finding approval from other people or institutions. The cross exposes the world's attitude to God. When God comes down to, in, his, in his light and his truth to, to help and to save us, we shut him up and kill him. And the world exposes what humanity's like in that sense. The cross shows God's verdict on the world. And when I get that, I lose my need for the world's approval. Why would I live and crave and desperately long for the approval of a world that put the Son of God to death. To say that the world has been crucified to me is to say, I celebrate that the cross frees me from this world. I celebrate that I don't need to live for the approval of others. That I'm now free to live just for the approval of God. And now I can, I can live the way I know I should. The way I've always wanted to. Because I'm free of the fear of what others will think. The world has been crucified to me. And I, thirdly, have been crucified to the world. It's the third crucifixion. I've been crucified to the world. You know, when you put your trust in Jesus, it's as if our old life is nailed to the cross with Jesus. All that's ugly in me. All that's impure in me. All that's wicked in me. All that's selfish. All that's empty is nailed to the cross and destroyed once and for all. And so you are set free if you trust in Jesus. You don't need to live in the past and you don't need to be defined by what you've done in the past. You are a new creation if you trust in Christ. God has freed you to live as his child. That phrase new creation is wonderful. It reminds us that unlike circumcision, the cross is not some empty ritual. Verse 15 tells us, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. When Jesus came back to life three days after he was crucified, it was an indestructible, eternal life that announced the beginning of the new creation, the first fruit of the new harvest. And all who trust in him will one day share in life in a perfect new creation. And we will be new. Our bodies, our souls will be new. Paul's opponents could offer a a ritual that felt really spiritual, I'm sure. And it would make a dramatic difference on your day-to-day life. It meant you could go to certain places in Jerusalem. It meant you were accepted in all sorts of institutions. But for all that, you still remained you, just with a tiny bit less flesh on your body. And a whole lot more rules on your conscience. Jesus offers to make you an entirely new creation. That leads us to the final verses, verse 16. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. The true Israel, that is the true people of God, are not those who've been through a ritual, 
but those who trust in God's son, Jesus Christ. 17 to 18, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Paul's opponents taught that the scar of circumcision was the hallmark of God's approval. Paul says that's rubbish. Verse 17, we're saved by grace, not by stuff we do. The only scars that show God's approval, he says, are the scars that come from persecution for faithfully following Christ. They don't earn God's approval. We don't earn God's approval by suffering stuff for him. He's not like that. Jesus has done everything necessary for us. But the scars Paul bears in his body, they prove his devotion to Christ. They prove the reality of his trust in Christ. And one day, the Savior, whose resurrected body still bears the scars of his crucifixion, will bring praise and delight to all who have suffered for him in this life. Okay, as we close, there are two crucial things for us to do tonight in response to God's word. The first is to boast in the cross. Boast in the cross. Now, when you step back for a second, that is a profoundly odd thing to do. Why would I boast in something that shows I am wicked? I am so wicked that the only way I could be saved and approved by God is for him to die a horrible death in my place. Why would I boast in that? Something that shows how perverted, how foul, how failed I am. It's true, the cross does that. But I boast in the cross because that's not all it shows. The cross also shows that no matter how short I fall, no matter how shameful my behavior, no matter how needy I am, God loves me and my salvation is secure. The cross shows you that you are far, far, far more foul and wicked than you ever dared admit. But it shows that the God who knows that loves you enough that he came to die so that you could be with him forever. If you trust in Christ, you can say, I am forgiven. If you trust in Christ, you can say, I am a new creation. If you trust in Christ, you are free from the crushing guilt of your sin your shame and your past. You are owned, loved and precious to the God who created the universe. The cross makes you eternally rich and blessed. If you trust in the cross of Jesus Christ, God lives in you by his Holy Spirit and is at work to change you. If you trust in the cross of Jesus Christ, you have the eternal hope of a remade creation with God forever. If you trust in the cross of Jesus Christ, you have the eternal hope that you will be transformed so that you'll be a suitable person for paradise. And if you trust in the cross of Jesus Christ, all that is yours. Not so long as you're good enough to stay in, so long as you do enough between now and your death. But all of it is a gift. All of it has been done for you by Jesus. So boast to yourself, Every day that you draw breath, boast to yourself that the cross of Christ has done everything. And so live boldly and confidently. I mean, what is the worst that can happen when your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future, and God's commendation is certain? 
Boast to each other tonight to encourage and strengthen one another, to keep trusting in and rejoicing in the cross. And boast to people you know. Boast to everybody outside these walls. For the world is, is dying in sinful hopelessness. And we have the message of eternal life. Boast in the cross and live before the audience of one. All the effort we expend desperately trying to be approved of and loved and thought well of by others. Let's be honest, that's all of us in this room. Trying to appear sorted in church so others think we're godly. We play a different game Monday to Friday, striving to win the approval of whichever group we're in, learning its rules to play its games so that we can win its prizes. Work, friends, family. But when you turn to the cross, when you trust in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know the smile of eternal God. You can live your life free of the need for others' approval and instead live your life before the audience of one and the approval of God in heaven. The commendation of your creator who one day will say, because Jesus has earned it for you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's joy. Let's pray. Our Father God, forgive us, we pray, for the foolish ways in which we scrabble around trying to get the approval of others, when all the while, if we would only look up, we would know that you are the God who will freely give us his approval. Forgive us for the foolish ways we scrabble around trying to to do good things and count our works as if we can earn that approval when all the while, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you give it to us as a gift. Help us, we pray, to understand, to trust in the cross of Jesus Christ so that we might boast in the cross knowing that our future is secure, our past is forgiven. And that one day, if we trust in the Lord Jesus, we will certainly, surely hear you, our God and Father, speak words of acceptance, words of approval, words of commendation, words that will define our destiny for all of eternity. Amen.